evening. It's good to see everybody here tonight. I hope you've had a good week so far and a good day. Uh, if you're joining us there online, uh, maybe you didn't get to join us this morning, I encourage you to go back and watch that uh, service. You can see it there on Facebook uh, or Twitter. Uh, you, you hopefully are following us on one of those uh, or YouTube. Uh, we have people that watch us on all those platforms as well as our phone live streaming. Uh, so I encourage you, if you need that number for the phone live streaming, call our church office, uh, 931-455-0645. Uh, let me remind you, if you're at home, you can go to our church website, hollandbaptistchurch.com. Uh, it's under the info link there that if you'll just click that, uh, it'll drop down. It'll show you several different options our newsletter for the month, our uh, worship bulletin for today. Uh, it'll also show you uh, the links for the children's worship bulletins. And adults, you might want to pick up one of these. We have extras in the windowsill over there. I don't see any kids tonight. <laughs> it's some little simple activities. And it's even got a little thing on the bottom that if you go to that website, punch that code in, there's some games you can play on there. <laughs> so uh, help you to remember maybe what we talked about this morning. Uh, so... <laughs> uh, they are there if you want those, uh, or if you just want to take them and share them. As they are there online, you can share those links with anybody uh, that you want to. You can download them, you can print them, however you need to use them. And then don't forget also, if you'll go to the far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab there. Uh, you can do your online giving, or if you're here in person, uh, we have offering envelopes that you can put your offering in, and the offering plates are on the sides here, as well as at the doors when you leave. So glad to have everybody here tonight. Looking forward to the message tonight. Brother Mike, if you'll come. Take your hymnals and turn to 406, The Solid Rock. We're going to sing all four verses. The Solid Rock. Miss Pat? Thank you, Brother Mike. Thank you, Miss Pat. Take your Bibles tonight, if you will, and turn to Luke's Gospel as we continue our walk through the life of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and in fact, as we're going to see uh, here in Luke's Gospel, this is really the shortest version of the Sermon on the Mount of all the Gospels uh, that cover the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount tonight. We're going to read these few verses in verse 17 down through verse 19 to kind of set the stage for us of where Jesus and his disciples are uh, at this place and leading into the Sermon on the Mount. So let's stand as we read God's Word in honor of his Word, Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, 18, and 19. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of all of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this passage tonight, Father, I pray that you will speak your truth into our lives. Lord, we uh, so often think of, of Jesus as being a moral teacher who taught many morals, many things that we ought to follow uh, in our lives. We hear that from the world, but he is so much more uh, than just a teacher. Uh, he is our Lord and our Savior. He is God in the flesh who came to die on the cross and to be resurrected from the grave. So I pray we'll see that tonight in this passage. We'll see some application for us from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Father, I just pray that you will lead us to a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. <clears throat> so as I said a while ago, this sermon is, as I said, a shorter version of what we call the Sermon on the Mount that's found over in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So there's three chapters that Matthew uses to cover the Sermon on the Mount. And even though some scholars uh, believe these were two different events, uh, if they are the same event, the, the fact that Matthew locates it on a mountain, notice what Luke said, he said it's on a level place there in verse 17. It really doesn't create a problem because in the Greek, the Greek word translated there, a, a level place or a plain can mean a plateau in the mountainous uh, regions. And so Jesus had went into the hill country uh, with his disciples and after that night of prayer, he came down uh, to a level place. He uh, ordained the, the 12, sent, was going to send them out to, to minister to the sick, to preach uh, the Word of God to, to the people. Uh, we heard, heard about that this morning. Uh, and it, it was his description here that we read uh, of what it means to have a life of blessing. And so it's out of this context of where he's been and what he's been doing, sending those disciples out. The crowds are pressing around him, as we saw this morning. And now he, uh, in verse 20, uh, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples and begins to go into the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when we think of that word blessed, as we've looked at when we looked at Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel there's a whole series that I preach. You can go back in on YouTube and research there uh, that we did the whole Sermon on the Mount, multiple sermons uh, going through. And so we won't take that much time tonight. But to most Jewish people, that word blessing would bring up images in their mind of, of a long life, of having lots of wealth, a large, healthy family, having barns that were full, having enemies that were conquered. And Jesus is preaching this message here not only to his disciples, we see that uh, he lifts his eyes up to his disciples in verse 20, but he also uh, is preaching to the crowds. Uh, he's preaching to the crowds. He's preaching to the 12. Uh, they all needed uh, to unlearn many things so that they could effectively serve him. And, and also they had, if you think about those 12 disciples, they had left everything to follow Jesus. And they were probably asking themselves at this point, What's in store for us? And so the Lord Jesus begins to explain in this sermon uh, that the truly blessed life doesn't, get, doesn't come from getting. Uh, the truly blessed life doesn't come even from doing. The truly blessed life comes from being. And so the emphasis here is on God-like character. You know, when the world looks at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what they say and what they see is Jesus was a great moral teacher. Many people believe that about Jesus, even if they don't believe he was God or the Son of God. You ever notice that people who claim that Jesus was a great moral teacher, they never go on to talk about his moral teachings. Because if you go on to talk about his moral teachings, then you have to apply those things to your life. And so the phrase that so often people use has a way of simultaneously communicating appreciation for Jesus, while at the same time trying to lower the Christian ideal of Jesus and who he is. In fact, many will say Jesus was a great moral teacher as a way of denying that he was the Son of God. 
You know, today, uh, good moral people tend to believe several things. One of those things is that life is about getting wealthy and that poverty is almost like a sin to be avoided. Uh, there are people who believe that love is the greatest virtue. As long as we all love everybody, uh, we're justified in everything that we do because I love you. And so uh, the, another thing they believe is that you can never, ever judge someone. And we're going to talk about that from this passage tonight. And there are many ways they believe to God, and they think that all of those ways are equally valid. Uh, and, and that is an interesting list of, of moral claims because nearly every one of those things, everyone takes those things to be basically true. However, nearly everyone who tells you that Jesus was only a good teacher has failed to actually consider their, their moral claims in light of Jesus' good moral teaching. And, and there's a reason for that. Because when we consider the good moral teachings of Jesus, what we do is we find ourselves face-to-face with a way of, of being good unlike anything in this world. We find ourselves face-to-face with with goodness itself in the person of Jesus. We come face to face with the morality as God defines it. And we actually come face to face with our need for someone to rescue us from the demands of goodness because there's no way that we can be good. In fact, the Bible tells us there's none that are good, no, not one. And so understand this about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching to the people. This is not the gospel. And nobody goes to heaven by following the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount applies to life today and describes the kind of godly character that we ought to have as believers in this world. And so what Jesus does in this sermon and what he did here was to focus on attitudes, our attitude toward life's circumstances, as we're going to see in verse 20 to 26, uh, our attitude towards loving people, examining ourselves, and even our obedience towards God. And so let's look at that first section, life's circumstances, where he addresses the things of life and how this sermon uh, applies to us. Notice he breaks it down into two things here, uh, Luke does. Now, if you remember, Luke wasn't there. When you go back through that list of the 12, Luke's name's not in there. Luke is one who depended on others like Peter to tell him as he's writing his gospel account what happened. What did you see? Uh, he's talking to Mary and he's talking to different ones to, to, to bring about a, a, a testif testifying testimony of the life of Jesus. And, and, and as you begin to read there in the book of Luke, uh, he's speaking to Theophilus and he's, that's what he's saying is he wants to, to lay out this case using all of the witnesses that he can come into contact with who were alive when he was to be able to share that. Now, Matthew and Mark, they were there. John was there, but Luke was not. And so Luke's relying on those other, uh, other persons and individuals. He breaks this sermon down into two. Now, when you look at Matthew's, Matthew, he takes three chapters, we said, to go through this whole sermon. He was there. He heard everything Jesus had to say. And so Luke is kind of summarizing, if you will, uh, the message in itself. So it's not uh, that, that their messages are different. The message is the same. The sermon is the same. So he breaks it down into two things. First of all, blessings. Blessings. And we see that in verse 20 down through verse 23. So let's read those verses. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now automatically when you read that, something ought to stand out different from what Luke says there that Jesus said versus what Matthew said. We'll come back and find out what that is, but I just wanted to make you aware of it there. Verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, something different between the way Mark phrases it and what the way Matthew puts it. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And so there in verse 20, Jesus is speaking 
to his disciples. Now, disciple just simply means a student or a follower of someone. The Lord Jesus wanted them to understand what life is like for those who follow him. And that word blessed is repeated four times in verse 20, 21, and 22. And that word that's translated blessed there could be translated happy. Uh, not in the happy feeling sense that we talk about so often with the word happy, though. So blessed is probably a better word. The Lord here describes, though, that blessed and joyful life from a kingdom perspective. So notice he describes uh, as happy or as blessed the poor, uh, those who are hungry, those who weep, those who are hated, those who are excluded and insulted and slandered. And so notice the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated. When we follow Jesus and we find ourselves in, in one of those conditions because we follow him, the Bible says you're blessed. You're blessed or, or you ought to be happy because from God's perspective, why? Because verse 20 concludes and says, because the kingdom of God is yours. You know, we may be poor uh, on this earth uh, with no earthly kingdom, but the heavenly kingdom is filled with glory that belongs to those who follow Jesus. And so you have available to you all the riches and the glory and the splendor uh, of heaven. The kingdoms of this earth will pass away, but the kingdom of God will always remain forever. And so not only that, notice, but our hunger now will be traded for complete satisfaction. Our weeping now, he says, will be traded for laughter. And so when Matthew records his version of these beatitudes, he emphasizes them in a spiritual way. So notice Matthew writes, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the poor physically, that I don't have any money in my pockets, I'm empty. That's not what Matthew's focusing on although this does have application for the physical also. And he also says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, do you remember, after righteousness. And so he emphasizes that spiritual emphasis. But Luke leaves us with a more literal meaning. Luke gives us that sense that hunger and weeping and the poverty that we may experience on this earth, it's all temporary. It's not going to last forever. You may be poor physically on this earth. You may be hungry. Uh, you may be thirsty. Uh, you may be weeping and, and sorrowful on this earth. But one day as a believer, all of that is going to fade away. And, and so notice what Mark uh, or what Luke tells us here. Luke says that these things happen now. Notice again in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Uh, that's the emphasis of the verbs there, that this is something that is happening now in their lives. And so uh, you think about that. They happen now, that temporary poverty, that temporary hunger, that temporary thirst. When you get to heaven, that's going to be a faded memory. And, and notice here that all of our longings and all of our hunger and all of our poverty, when we get to heaven, it's going to be satisfied and even overflowing with laughter and joy in the presence of God. And when people hate and people exclude and people insult and people slander those who are followers because of the Son of Man, as verse 22 tells us, then our rejoicing reaches its highest level. Because when we suffer for our Savior's name, we ought to count it an honor to suffer with Jesus because you're going to receive the prophet's treatment and a great reward. That's what verse 23 is saying there. He says, in that day, you'll leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to 
the prophets. And so notice Jesus doesn't use these adjectives haphazardly. So how does the Lord of heaven define great? How much reward will eternity provide in exchange for the sorrow that we experience here on this earth? Understand this in, as Jesus is speaking to the crowds, as he's speaking to the disciples, as he's speaking to us. Life was difficult for the people of that day. And there wasn't much hope that their circumstances were going to be improved at least anytime soon. And so like, like people today, many of them thought, as we said before, that, that, that happiness and blessing came from having a lot of possessions, came from holding high positions, came from enjoying the pleasures and the popularity that money could buy. Imagine how surprised they were, though, when they heard Jesus describe blessing and happiness in terms of just the opposite of what they had expected. They discovered that what they needed most was not a change in circumstances, but a change in their relationship to God and in their outlook on life. And so notice Jesus wasn't teaching that, that poverty and hunger and persecution and tears were blessings in and of themselves. If that were true, he would have never done all that he did uh, to alleviate the sufferings of others. Rather, Jesus is describing those inner uh, thoughts and attitudes that we have to have if we're going to experience the blessings of the Christian life. We need to remember that there is no amount of things that could ever substitute for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So he starts here in the Sermon on the Mount emphasizing the blessings, but then pick up with verse 24 through verse 26 and we see the curses. So there's blessings that he mentions and now there's curses that he mentions. And we'll see that in this one particular word that we're gonna see over and over. Verse 24 says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so what we learn in those verses right there is that without Jesus, we're doomed. Notice the contrast here. The Lord gives four woes here. In the Bible, when a prophet warns people of an impending judgment, he would often begin with that word woe. You can go back to the Old Testament, you can read that word over and over and over uh, in the prophets. Woe refers to unrelenting sorrow and unrelenting pain and unrelenting agony, the kind that can't be relieved. And so woe is that that crushes a person. And when the prophets pronounced a woe against the people, the woe comes at the hand of God's judgment. It's not as a result necessarily of things they were doing. It comes, uh, it, it's not a result of them themselves. It's, it's the choices they made and the sin that they had committed. Uh, and notice what he says in verse 24. He says, woe comes to the rich. He says in verse 25, woe comes to those who are full now. He says in verse 25, uh, woe comes to those who are laughing now. Verse 26, woe comes to those who are popular in the world now. And, and so what he's saying here to the people is, and what he's saying to his disciples is, because as they looked around them, uh, they thought, well, how do these people over here, they seem to not be doing the things that your word tells, God's word says to do, and, and they seem to be living fine, and everything seems to be going fine and dandy for them. And so notice what Jesus is saying is they might appear to enjoy what this world has to offer, but there's no mention of the Lord in their life. In verse 22, Jesus says some disciples, some disciples suffer in this world because of the Son of Man. And so the rich, the full, the laughing, the popular, they don't suffer in this world, and there's no mention of the Son of Man. They live it up without Jesus. And so they received this, this warm welcome from everybody who enjoyed the false prophets that verse 26 talks about. But they're doomed. Why? Because notice what he says. The rich have received, in verse 24, past tense, their consolation or, or comfort. Their comfort was what? Their money. 
their riches. That's where they found their comfort. But when their lives end, what he's saying is, their money is all gone. Uh, there's not, not going to be any comfort for them in that day. They're going to outlive their money, and their money will outlive its usefulness, and all that will be left apart from Jesus is woe. He talks about those who are full, and he says, now that, here's those that are full. It's like they're living high on the hog. Uh, they satisfy their own desires. They, they have refrigerators full, uh, money to eat out now. But when judgment comes, he says, then they're going to be hungry. Hell for them is going to be a constant hungering, never being satisfied, a, a gnawing in their guts. The worm, will, their worm will never die. Uh, they had it all in this life, but they won't have anything in the life to come because they don't have Jesus. And so he says, those who are now laughing, they won't be laughing then. They're going to be mourning and they're going to be weeping, as verse 25 says. In fact, many places in the Bible describe judgment and hell as what? Do you remember that description? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in the end, they're going to be sorry that they spent their lives laughing, laughing in the worldly pleasures apart from Jesus. And then he references those who are, who are popular, those who knew what it meant to have all people speaking well of you. They're going to suffer woe too. Many people in Israel's history love those false teachers, and they, they showered the false teachers with praise and, and with rewards. But in the end, the people and those false prophets, they perished in God's judgment. And these people, they loved inviting the preachers and the teachers who would tell them all that their itching ears wanted to hear. And the true prophets, they rejected. The false prophets, they loved. Understand this, that a wealthy, well-liked person without Jesus is a doomed person. One of the most doomed persons you'll ever meet because they are without Jesus. Everything about their life, it may look wonderful on the outside, but the great moral teacher that the world says he is says they have no reward. Their future is full of woe. The blessed and the happy life is exactly the opposite of what most people think, especially what this world thinks. You know, happiness with Jesus, blessing with Jesus uh, plus nothing is far better than having everything this world has and yet not have Jesus. The happiness of everything minus Jesus is temporary. The joy of Jesus plus nothing is, uh, is eternal. These people, what he's saying is they're spiritually bankrupt and, and they don't even realize it. And, and the world says, oh, Jesus is just, a great moral teacher. Notice that the great moral teacher curses what the world thinks is good and blesses what the world thinks is bad. Who do you think has it correct? The world or Jesus? You know, abundant life doesn't come from things. Abundant life comes from Jesus. So you can either follow Jesus and suffer for Jesus now and only, only to be greatly rewarded later, or if you don't follow Jesus now and, and you seek pleasure in this world now, you're going to suffer the woe of God's judgment forever. The choice is ours. Notice the second thing that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount that Luke emphasizes for us is our attitude about loving people. Our attitude about loving people. And all of these are connected one to the other. So he's not uh, just picking things out of the air to talk about. We're going to see that as we tie it all together here. So only loving those who you call your friends is worthless. But there's a great reward in loving our enemies. Jesus assumed that anybody who lived for eternal values was going to get in trouble with the world's crowd. In fact, Jesus in Matthew's gospel says that, that Christians are the salt of the earth. We're to be the light of the world. And, and as Matthew tells us, sometimes the, the, the salt stings. And sometimes the light exposes sin. 
You know, you go into the dark room and you turn the light on and the cockroaches spread, don't they? They run for the cover. They go to the dark. Sinners show their hatred by avoiding us and rejecting us and, and insulting us and physically abusing us and suing us, as we're going to see here. And that's something we have to expect, even as believers. So how should we treat our enemies? We have to love them, to do good to them, to pray for them. Hatred only breeds more hatred because our anger, our anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. That can only be done, that can't be done in our, strength, in our strength. That can only be done in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because our world loves to talk about love, don't they? Love is cheap. It's, it's a cheap word nowadays because love is so little understood. It's even almost impossible to find. But, but love remains the justification for just about anything people want to do. So people tell us that any two people who love each other ought to be able to marry, even if those two people are of the same sex. And their professed love for each other provides a, a moral justification for uh, their acts. Well, we love each other, so shouldn't we be together? And, and so that professed love, they, they use that to justify their acts. We're, we're told love conquers all and love wins, but here comes Jesus who's the great moral teacher, and if Jesus taught anything, he taught us the truth about love. And he showed us in his teaching, and especially in his death on the cross, the nature and the scope of godly love. And the Lord calls his disciples to live out that love in at least two surprising ways. Notice who we're to love. Who are we to love? Well, the first surprise concerns that, who we're supposed to love. So look at verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So what is Jesus saying, first of all, about who we're to love? Notice here, hatred for your enemies feels like the most natural thing in the world. It almost seems like enemies were made for our hatred. I mean, that's who they are. They harmed us, they, uh, and, and we at least harden our hearts towards them. At, at most, we, we, we want to do to them worse than they did to us. Uh, we tell ourselves, it's okay to get even, because what did we say as kids? They started it, he started it, she started it. We say it's only right. We, we say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I mean, isn't that the way the world works? Isn't that the, the morally acceptable way of thinking even in our day? But heaven's morality differs from the world's radically. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. But then he goes a step further. Jesus points out in verses 32 down to verse 34 that our love for people who are like us is in one sense worthless in God's sight. Because when we love people who are like us, it doesn't do anything to distinguish us from the people out there of the world who don't know God. And so there's a kind of love completely natural to a fallen world. Let's just continue on here and we'll read those verses, 32 to verse 34. And we'll come back to them in a moment. So verse 32 says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
So notice there that those words, even sinners. Even sinners love their friends, love their families, and they lend money to people that they like. And so if we love those who love us, do good to those who do good to us, lend to those who can repay, then we're really acting out of a self-interest rather than love. If that's all we're loving is those who love us, those who do good to us, those who are willing to repay what we lend to them. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, even sinners do that. In other words, people who don't know God and don't live for God, he says, they show that kind of love all the time. And so there's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. The love we're to have as believers is to be a supernatural love. If we find that our love is limited to people like us, what do we mean by that? Say like our skin color or, or somebody who's of our educational level or maybe of our political party. Uh, you know, if that's the only people we love and we find ourselves only doing good for those who have done good for us, uh, have done some favor for us, then that's just a self-love. However, the love of God isn't self-focused. The love of God is selfless, is sacrificial, genuinely supernatural, God-like love. That includes our enemies who wrong us and our enemies who abuse us. And that's how Christian love surpasses the sinner's love. Christian love extends to our enemies. And that brings us to the second surprising thing that Jesus teaches about love. Not only about who we're to love, but how much are we to love them? How much am I to love my enemies? Notice verse 27. Verse 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Notice how far love goes. Love makes demands. Love can't be shown with words only. We must love not only with our words, but also with our actions, with our deeds. You see, godly love returns good for evil. If people hate us, we, we're supposed to do good to them. It, what, what if people curse us? We're to bless them. If people abuse us, what are we to do? We're to pray for them. Godly love calls us to lay down our lives even for more abuse if necessary. If they strike us on the cheek, we offer the other cheek also. If, if they take away our coats, what does he say? We, we give them the shirt off our back too. If they beg from us, we give to everyone who asks without requiring anything back. When we love our enemies, we give ourselves up for them. Because the world says, love your friends and hate your enemies. But the one they call a great moral teacher says, love your enemies and give them even more. Then notice that leads us to a third question. Why we're to love them? Why am I supposed to love my enemy? Well, notice verse 31. He says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But notice verse 30, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is, the, he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Why are we to love them? Why love this way? What's the rationale for loving our enemies the way Jesus is saying? First, we ought to love this way because it's how we would want to be treated. How would you want to be treated? Love puts us in the place of the mistreated, of the oppressed, of, of the marginalized. It causes us to imagine, what would it be like to, to be in their shoes? 
And then we're to act like Jesus when, we, when we're put in that place. And then secondly, we ought to love this way to, to earn the great reward and to prove by our love that we are Christians. As Christians, we want the world to know that, and, and to serve the Most High God. We want them to see His love. We want the world to know Him. And the main way that God intends for the world to know Him is by our love for one another and our love for others, including our enemies. And so when we love that way, you are living like Jesus. I mean, when we act like our Father, it pleases God and He rewards us. You know, loving our enemies seems so unnatural and sometimes even seems impossible until you begin to look at the biblical examples of it. And the greatest example of that kind of sacrificial love is in Jesus Christ Himself. Who did Jesus die for? Who did he suffer for? Jesus was crucified at the hands of his enemies. He did absolutely nothing wrong. And and Jesus was crucified there. The very people who put him to death were the very people Jesus came to save. They, They mocked him and they abused him. And what did Jesus do from the cross? Jesus prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. They whipped him. They beat him. And yet Jesus, he never said a word. But he gave his body to be broken for them and for us. They took his tunic and his robe. They stripped him naked, you remember. And he willingly allowed it. He he didn't demand his rights. He didn't demand repayment. Oh, you're going to pay me back for that. He didn't even ask for an apology. The Son of God gave his life for sinners so that even though we were enemies of God, we might be made sons of God through faith in him. When we were his enemies, Jesus loved us. Here's what I want you to realize from this. Never underestimate the redemptive power of godly love. So what's the application for love your enemies and do good to them? It's pretty simple. Love your enemies and do good to them bless them, pray for them, endure their mistreatment, give to your enemies, don't expect anything back in return, make a mental, even maybe an actual list of people who who think of you as enemies, and then do those things, Jesus said. Notice the third thing that Jesus speaks about in this message, that we need to uh, think about the attitudes that we have about examining Ourselves, You know, so often we want to point the finger at others, just so, as we were just talking about there. We want to say, oh, that's my enemy. But what about you? Examining ourselves is what he talks about in these next verses in verse 37 down to verse 45. And so we're told by this world that you can't judge anybody. Our culture insists that we shouldn't judge anyone. We're told that judging others is immoral even. We're told that we can't judge others because we don't really know what's in another person's heart. And, and obviously we don't know what's in a person's heart, but there are things we can see on the outside that give us the indication of what's in the heart. I mean, think about this. If you're just looking at a tree that has no leaves on it, you might not know what kind of tree that is. But if all of a sudden you start seeing in a few months some apples popping out on that tree, what are you going to think that tree is? Not a lemon tree. It's an apple tree. By the fruit, you can tell what kind of tree that is. And so uh, when we think about what we're looking at here, we're told by the world that we can't judge others because we don't know what's in another's heart. And obviously that has a certain appeal to it, but that's not what Jesus, or not even how Jesus thinks about judgment. Jesus lays down four principles for righteous judgment. I encourage you to jot these notes down of this part to get this straight. I've seen so many churches and so many Christians get this part wrong. They want to exercise church discipline. They, they want to skip to the last one. And they never do the first three that we're going to talk about. There's four things. First, be generous to others. That's what verse 37 and verse 38 says. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, 
and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will he put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So understand here, this first principle for righteous judgment is to be generous to others in our judgments. Because understand this, when it comes to our judgments and our perception of others, what goes around comes around. And the way you judge others, it's going to come back to you the same way. And so if you aren't judging, if we aren't judging and condemning, uh, others won't generally judge and condemn us. If we forgive and we give to others, others will generally forgive and give to us. In fact, our generosity toward others will generally produce uh, an overflowing generosity toward us. And that's the point of verse 38. Uh, because in context, it really doesn't have to do with, with finances, with money, putting offering in, in the plate on Sunday morning. It, it has to do with how we regard and treat other people. And so if we would be moral in our judgments, then we have to be generous towards others with God's grace and God's mercy. Nothing less that we got. And that's only the first step. Here's the second step. Be careful about who you follow. Verse 39 says, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So notice here, people become like their teachers. And so whether it's in religious or business circles or social settings, the people we look to as teachers will by their teaching and by their example, they will impress their, the pattern of their lives onto ours. So who do we need to follow? Not people in the world. We need to be following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you'll become more like Jesus. If your leader is blind, he says, then you'll follow him into whatever pit or whatever hole he walks into. If your leader, though, sees with a moral clarity, then you're going to follow him into righteousness and truth. If we follow people who are hypocritical uh, and, and hypercritical even uh, and condemning, sooner or later their behavior uh, it becomes a part of our language and a part of our actions. And if we follow someone who's always building others up, always encouraging others, always showing kindness and humility, then we learn to be compassionate and patient and tender. So be careful who you're following. Here's the third point. Deal with your own stuff first. Deal with your own stuff first. So often we want to deal with somebody else's mess before we've dealt with our own mess. Notice verse 41 and verse 42. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So notice here, we can't deal with our neighbors or with somebody else's splinter when we've got a great big old beam coming out of our own eye. That's hypocrisy. That's what verse 42 is saying. And he says, he doesn't say, take the beam out of your eye and then don't worry about your brother. He says, we're supposed to help each other when we fail. So think about it. It's, it would be immoral of us if we have a brother or sister in Christ uh, who, who's in sin, who's not living the way they ought to, and not to reach out and to lovingly encourage them and help them. Not to come and berate them and, and beat them and, and, and take the Bible and get out of that sin. So often we see that in the church. It's hypocritical not to deal with our own sin first. We can't see to help others until we've helped ourselves. So think about this. You ever taken a flight on an airplane? And you've heard the, the illustration of this point then. Before takeoff, the attendant reviews those safety instructions. Usually they're in the back of your seat or the, front, the back of the seat in front of you. And pull them out. She goes through all the instructions. Many times we're not even paying attention. We're just doing something else. We're not even listening to what she's having to say. But she's given those instructions. And, and here's what she tells us, instructions about putting on an oxygen mask in case of emergency. Do you remember those instructions? The attendant tells the passengers, you have to put on 
your own mask first before you can help somebody else around you. That's the way it is with our sin and the sins of others. Deal with your own stuff first. But we see here that Jesus says it is perfectly legitimate in, in his perspective in the right context to judge a person's heart. Notice verse 43. Verse 43, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And an evil person, out of the evil treasure in his heart, it's, it's implying there, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So understand this. After you've done those first three, and only then, could you possibly be enabled by God's grace and God's spirit to look at somebody else's heart morally and, and correctly? Uh, again, the world tells us you can't know somebody's heart. The culture says that judging, some, that, that judging someone's heart is about the most immoral thing that we could try to do. Everyone says the, the heart's a secret place. It's closed off to the world. Nobody can tell you what lies in your own heart. And ultimately, God is the only one who can tell what's in the heart. But think about what Jesus says here. The world says he's a great moral teacher. And all of us are, he says, all of us are like fruit trees. You either produce good fruit or you produce bad fruit. And the fruit we produce actually comes from where? Our hearts. Comes from our hearts. So that which is invisible that I can't see in somebody's heart becomes visible by the fruit. So the invisible things of the heart are revealed by their visible actions and, and by their audible words of a person. We don't see into another person's heart, but that doesn't mean that the heart never reveals itself. The words and the actions tell us what lies beyond the natural sight in the heart. So Jesus is saying that if the habit of a person's life is sin, then what is that person? They're a sinner. If the habit of a person in their life is righteousness, then that person is righteous. The fruit reveals the root, reveals the heart. You know, we can't discern or judge the hearts of others with any kind of clarity or with any kind of accuracy uh, unless we first do those first three things, that we're generous toward them. We're following sound teaching ourselves, and we encourage, uh, we're eager in our own selves to deal with our own stuff first. And until those things are true of us, we shouldn't even be worried much about others. Instead, we ought to fall on our knees before God asking for this kind of integrity and this kind of humility in our own life. We, let me just say this, we need, I need, we all need good, godly Christian friends who are willing to follow those first steps. And if we've stepped out of line and we're not following the Lord, that they would lovingly come to us and say, hey, I don't think you're doing what you need to be doing. Can I help you? I mean, this is, I'm concerned for you. You're not coming to them with that judgmental type attitude. And I've seen that happen so often in so many churches that we want to jump to this, third, to this fourth part and to, and to judge someone and to exercise church discipline before we've even done the first things in our own life. You can't deal with the speck that's in someone else's eye until you deal with that beam in your own eye. Then notice, we see obedience towards God. He's told us here already in these things that he's talked about. Here's how you're blessed. Here's how you're to love others. Here's how you're to judge others. And then he talks about obedience towards God. So notice in verse 46 down through verse 49. He ends his sermon here and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? you're not even doing what I tell you. You heard what he said about how we're to love others. You heard what he said about how we're to treat our enemies. 
You've heard how he said, we're to do those other things first before we ever uh, look at coming to that fourth step of, of, of coming alongside someone to help them deal with the problem in their own heart. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, do, and not do what I tell you? Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug, a, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the storm came and the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. So notice how the Lord ends his sermon here. If we're disciples and we're followers of Jesus Christ, then we must obey him. It's hypocritical for us to call ourselves Christians and then not do what Jesus says. Worse than that, our disobedience proves that we really don't love him. And so Jesus says in many places throughout the Bible, let me just give you a few. You may want to jot down these as reference. These won't be on the screen. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. John 14, 21 says, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, verse 24 says, The one who does not love me will not keep my words. Uh, John 15, verse 10 says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. John 15, 10. John 15, 14 says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And we could look at other verses all night long. Obedience to Jesus' teaching is an essential requirement for us as Christians in our following of him. Our obedience, understand this, it doesn't earn God's forgiveness. Our obedience doesn't earn God's acceptance. Know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. He'll never love you more than he loves you right now. How do we know that? Because he's already sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins, and you didn't do a thing for it. No one can obey their way to heaven. God saves sinners by grace, through faith, alone. But saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by an obedience that comes from faith. And so forgiveness and acceptance only come by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But if our faith is true, then our obedience has to be real. He is our Lord. So he commands our lives. And in our obedience, we demonstrate our love for him. And when we're obedient to him, we prove ourselves to be friends with him. And his love and his father's love rests on us. Think about this. To call him Lord and to not do what he says makes the name Lord meaningless. I heard somebody tell about a preacher years ago who illustrated this point by asking people to write two words on a note card. You might want to jot those words down. Two words were no and Lord. No and Lord. Here's what that preacher said. He, he said he told us those two words could not stand side by side. We would have to cross out one of the words. He said if there is any area of your life that you say no to Jesus, then you must cross out the word Lord. But if you call him Lord in your life, you must forever cross out the word no. Because he's your Lord. And there's no way he can be your Lord if you're saying no to him. The only way to serve Jesus as Lord acceptably is to submit to his word in every area of your life. 
Obedience becomes a foundation for times of trial and storm. Obedient persons lay a foundation on the rock. And even though their house is, is battered by the rains and the storm, it stands to the end. The disobedient person builds their house on the sand. And the storms of life come and destroy that house because they didn't obey the word of God. Ultimately, Jesus describes the difference between heaven and hell. Heaven belongs to those who believe the gospel and obey Jesus. And hell is the, is the ruin that awaits for those who reject the gospel, who don't obey the Lord's words. So the question is, is that moral? Our culture says you can't force your morality on someone else. The world says it, that's bigoted, that's intolerant to require others to live by your standards, to live by the standards of, of God's word. But yet here is Jesus who many in the world, even though they may be lost, says he's a great moral teacher. And he's demanding that the world call him Lord and obey his commands. He forces his morality onto the world. He threatens here and says, if you don't, if you disobey, ruin is going to come. And yet he promises safety and blessing to those who believe. In the end, there's only one of two ways to live. We either obey the Lord and we stand strong in his word or we disobey the Lord and fall in ruin on that judgment day. Obedience and blessing on the one hand, disobedience and, and ruin on the other. It all rides on whether you believe in and obey this great moral teacher, Jesus. You have to decide, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord? Because if he's telling the truth, and we know he is, then the only sane thing you can do is to accept him as your Lord and to obey his teachings all the days of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage and what just, Lord, a brief summary that Luke has given us here of the full Sermon on the Mount. Father, I pray that we have seen and maybe even examined our own hearts as the light of the word of your truth has shone into our hearts. Lord, we know that salt stings and light penetrates into darkness. Maybe you've shown us some things about ourselves that we've been judging others when we haven't even dealt with our own stuff first. We're not even where we need to be to even be close yet to helping somebody else with their problems. Lord, help us to fall before you on our faces humbly and to say, God, forgive me. God, bring into my heart that kind of honesty and that kind of integrity into my own life before I start trying to help others. And Father, I pray that you will raise up godly people within the church who will walk alongside of others, uh, people like our deacons who will walk alongside their church families, people like our Sunday school teachers who will live that Christian example that they're teaching about in a Sunday school class. Father, uh, all those who are in leadership positions, that we would be that godly example, not just when we're doing that, that particular thing you've called us to do, but even outside of that, that people see us the same way, whether we're teaching the Sunday school class or we're out at the, at the grocery store, that they see Christ in our actions. They see your love. Father, I pray that you will help us to show a love to the world around us, even those who are caught up in all the most immoral sins that we could possibly imagine or think of, that we would show them the supernatural love of Jesus Christ, not the love that the world shows, because sinners do that. Help us, Lord, to love like Jesus. And I pray, God, that you will use our witness and our lives and our testimony to bring truth into their hearts, that they will feel conviction of their sins, and that we would be there to help lead them and guide them to faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Thank you, Lord, for this word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brother Mike, come and lead us in our hymn of invitation, seek ye first. As the Lord lays on your heart, as you stand, will you come? As you sing.
that's the message. Seek Him first. Thank you so much for joining us tonight online. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you next Sunday. Uh, just a reminder, we won't have regular service on Wednesday night. We'll be having our Awana celebration. So come in and join us for that as we celebrate our Awana kids ending their year. We're going to have food. We're going to have fellowship, games, and stuff uh, that they're going to be doing. Uh, but we'll be joining with you online again next Sunday morning at 10, uh, 1030, uh, 915 for Sunday school if you can come join us in person. You have a blessed and a safe week, and we'll see you next Sunday. Thank <music> you.